We've heard a lot about King David this summer. That is the nature of lectionary year B. It happens every three years. And we were introduced to him a few months ago now, way back in 1 Samuel, as the ruddy, handsome shepherd boy, the baby of the family, I feel like I should add. We watched him slay Goliath because he knew that the battle belonged to the Lord. We watched him make friends, get married, take over the kingdom, bring the tabernacle into Jerusalem, make an eternal covenant with God. They grow up so fast, don't they? David won military victories. He showed kindness to the oppressed. He praised the Lord all along the way. God even called him a man after my own heart. So what happened? Why do we get to church this morning to hear a lesson about David the king, the murderer, and the abuser? Well, back in chapter 11, at the beginning of it, while David's army is out fighting, he stays home rather than fighting, which is what kings were supposed to be doing. So while he's slothfully moping about the palace, he sees a woman bathing. He is the king, so I guess he can get whatever he wants to fulfill his desires right, so he sends for her. Bathsheba, that woman who was bathing, comes to tell David, I'm pregnant. Her only words in the whole story. Well, obviously that's not a part of the plan, and David doesn't want a royal scandal on his hands, so he calls for Uriah, her husband, and brings him home from the battlefield. Remember where David was supposed to be himself. It turns out Uriah, the Gentile, is too virtuous to go home and lay with his wife while the army is out fighting a battle and while the ark of the Lord remains in booths. It's actually the first mention of God in the whole story. So since Uriah isn't going to be agreeable to the plan, David has to get creative. Of course he can't repent. Of course he can't come clean. He needs to make sure that everything that just conspired happens without a trace. So since Uriah has now doubly proven himself to be a trustworthy servant, David sends him back to the battlefield with orders to put him on the front lines. Uriah, as David expected and planned, dies. That's where our reading begins. Bathsheba, the woman abused by authority and newly widowed, makes lamentation over her dead husband, and then is absorbed into David's harem. And from there, it looks like David has basically gotten what he wanted, 
a person to please him, a dead husband to cover up the dishonorable incident, and a new baby boy. But, of course, that's not the end. God, thus far absent from the story, sees the thing that David did as evil in his eyes, and he will not tolerate it. So God sends Nathan the prophet. Nathan showed up a little bit earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David desired to build God a house. It sounds like a virtuous enough desire, but God let him know very quickly that the Lord is not a God who needs any human to build him a house. This time, the setting of Nathan's visit is a little different. David isn't desiring something. He isn't asking permission or advice. He didn't even invite Nathan the prophet over. No, David's already sought out what he thought he desired, and he's left a trail of destruction behind him. So Nathan, the prophet, tells us a story. It's the way that prophets and the Bible in general do theology best. We've got a rich man and a poor man. The poor man just had one sheep, one that was like a daughter to him, maybe more than his own children. He bottle-fed this sheep. He had pictures of this sheep in his wallet. This sheep sat in his lazy boy to watch Netflix at the end of the day. Now, the rich man was throwing a party. He had some guests in town. And, you know, the thing he thought would make him the most happy is if he got that old poor man's sheep just down the way. He had plenty of his own sheep, of course, but this one was pampered. Remember, bottle-fed, slept in the bed with him, had daily walks. This was a prime rack of lamb. So he took the poor man's sheep, and he slaughtered it and made, oh, I'm sure just the most delicious medium-rare lamb chops you could think of, and never thought about it again. It was no longer his problem. He'd done what he wanted to the sheep and has now disposed of it. The story apparently strikes a chord with David. Despite his actions in the story, he still seems to know and desire justice, so he exclaims, as surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. It's the first time he's mentioned God in a while. Nathan doesn't waste any time. He just gets straight to the point. You are the man. David, 
of course, was a shepherd. Back when we were introduced to him, he was the one who was out in the field shepherding the flock. He knew the intense bond that was created between shepherd and sheep. He knew what it was like to be abused and hung up to dry by the rich party throwers who aren't there for a long time. They're there for a good time. They just want to take what they think they desire and move on. And Nathan tells David that he's become that very thing that he hates. Then Nathan gets a little bit more specific, saying, thus says the Lord. I made you king. I rescued you. I gave you a house and wives and land. And if you wanted more, I would have given it to you. But instead, you took advantage of a woman and murdered her husband to cover it up. God goes on to curse David. We shouldn't be surprised. He warned us that he would do that back in Deuteronomy. But it's peculiar that God sees the thing that David did as an infraction against God. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Now, yes, obviously it's a sin against God. I don't think that we need help seeing that. But do the names David, Uriah, and Bathsheba come to mind? Is it not at least a little bit, at least kind of a sin against them too? According to the Bible, according to 2 Samuel and to Psalm 51, it isn't. According to God, David's sin, the thing that David did was seek fulfillment in things other than God. He tells him, if all that I had given you was too little, I would have added much more. It's the part in the story where it begins to sting. Because if we think of ourselves better than David, the Bible quickly corrects that misunderstanding. Everyone in this room just saying the words, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. We didn't sing, have mercy on David. Albeit, David in this story is a spectacular example. Maybe most of us, probably most of us, have not and will not be in David's exact position. But we do have our more polite ways of seeking our own desires at the expense of others. We desire authority, so we stack up academic degrees. We desire 
social respectability, so we gossip about others' lack thereof. We desire intimacy without commitment. We desire value, so we work ourselves to death. We desire leisure, so we waste away on the couch. For goodness sake, we desire an overabundance of food, so we destroy lands and people that we will never see and we will never meet. When it comes down to it, all things considered, we sound a whole lot like the rich man and like David. Now our desires, they aren't necessarily wrong. Food, shelter, relationships, knowledge, these things are not wrong in and of themselves. David's desire for Bathsheba isn't necessarily wrong. She was a divine image bearer, and humans are meant for intimacy with one another. But using her to fulfill his own disordered desires is most certainly wrong, evil in the eyes of the Lord, as our text put it. So what is the good news of this story? Are we just slaves to our desires? Are we just muddling along, destroying everything in the path of what we think we want without any help? No. Thanks be to God. In our gospel lesson today, the people want bread. At least they think that they do. So they go to Jesus, which is never a bad thing to do. He did, by the way, provide the last meal that they all ate. But Jesus knows that they need something other than bread. They need him. Jesus knows that the gap that exists between desire and fulfillment isn't a place that humans can last for too long. It's far, far too painful. So he gives us himself. There wasn't any magic trick or glitter or pomp or majesty, just your everyday, you know, your everyday God dying on a cross and giving himself as the Eucharistic feast. I know that it sounds trite. And we all have examples of people, maybe ourselves, who regularly take the Eucharist and do some pretty awful things. Leave a destruction path behind us in the way of what we want. King David himself, just a few chapters before in the last book, was eating temple bread. But the promise of 2 Samuel 
that God gives to David and God gives to us is that he just doesn't, won't give up. It seems that there are two paths that are given to us. Live in the pain of unfulfilled desire and wait on the Lord to fulfill them. Or seek fulfillment in, by dishonest means, and the Lord will come and find you. And lay the guilt on an innocent son. So come. Come unto this, the Lord's table. Let the desire of nations fulfill your own desires. Ask him, and he would give as much more. But know that if you don't come to this table, if you seek to fill your own desires by a string of bad decisions, starting with despising the word of the Lord, know that God just won't give up on you. He'll send Nathan, and then Isaiah, and then Huldah, and then Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel, and then Ezra, until his own innocent, anointed son. And unlike that rich man in Nathan's parable, that one who doesn't care anything about that one sheep, this shepherd cares so much about that one sheep. And he'll find you and keep searching until he brings you home. Amen.